you're a golfer and you haven't got a team yet, you can still throw your team in this afternoon and probably still beat us. Um, so, no fear. Uh, my name's Colby. I serve as the teaching elder. And uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark um, as we kind of lead in. Um, just to discuss where we've been, we're coming to today a secret disciple. And when I thought about the experience of Joseph of Arimathea and my own experience in college and my own spiritual journey, uh, it brought me to a story when I was in college. I had an opportunity when I left high school to play football, but instead took an academic scholarship, had a full academic ride to the University of Oklahoma, God's University. And so I went there and enrolled in the basic freshman classes. And if you've been to a major university, not like a community college, but you've been to these big universities, basically they get the bang for their buck by putting 500, 700 freshmen in these intro classes, just cashing your tax dollars right there, all right? And so you come into these massive classes, and I had to take intro to psychology. So I come into this intro to psychology. I'd never taken a psychology class and there was a woman there that taught the class. And as she began the class, she went out amongst all the students in this class and said, I want you to write on paper every emotion you could think of. Every feeling. Right? And so everybody wrote it down. And then she went through the room and started to ask who had the most. And, you know, everybody's trying to impress freshman girls at college. Like, that's the thing. So I had this list, and I am super, I'm not great at uh, a lot of um, board games. Like, my wife is so good at the uh, bananagrams, just crushes me at bananagrams. But you get into categories, that's my game, all right? How many letters can we get the same word? So I write down like 20-something words that have to do with emotion. My grandparents had taught me to read from the Bible, so I had these King James words like sorroweth. Right? If you put the TH at the end, it's an extra word. Started putting in there wrath, distress, travail. You know, like words that most freshmen maybe don't know, but if you've read the King James Bible, there's a vocabulary in there that a lot of people don't know. So she asked me to stand up and to read my list of words that I had in this list. At this point in my life, I was so far from God. I tore my ACL playing football my senior year of college. I was bitter. I was angry. I was in these prodigal years chasing drugs and parties and all this stuff. I don't even know how I made it to this class. And here she is having me stand up in front of 500 freshmen, read my list. And as I got to the end of my list, she looked at me, 500 plus more people, and said, Are you a Christian? And that question hit me like a freight train. I had believed the gospel, had an experience with Jesus, I'd been baptized. I, I was just, uh, at this point in my life, and this may relate to some of you, I was completely ashamed of Jesus. And in that moment, I'm sitting up there knowing enough of the Bible to know, he who denies me before men will be denied before my father. And, but my fa- I'm, I am choking on a yes or no answer. And I couldn't get it out. I was just standing there and I, I mumbled, yes, the most pathetic, weak, embarrassing, yes, most inconsistent yes I've ever said in my whole life. Because if you followed me that weekend, that yes was 
weak sauce. There's something in me that stood there and what I just I I wanted to crawl into a hole and die. Because I knew who Jesus was, but I was embarrassed to let other people know that. So maybe I was a disciple, but if I was, it was a secret discipleship. Have you ever been there before when you've come to Christ and you didn't want your family to know? Right? Or you didn't want your former friend group that you used to party with? Right? You ain't trying to blast it on Facebook because you know how certain people who knew you at a certain time of your life would look at you if you claimed to know Christ. I, I think that's relevant for us because we're going to look at a cat, Joseph of Arimathea, and I, I had intentions of doing much more text. As I studied the burial of Jesus, I found incredibly powerful things about the burial of Jesus and, and an incredible witness in the life of Joseph of Arimathea that I think could minister to some of us that at times of our lives have been cowards for Christ. So, as we jump into this, um, can we just pray and ask God um, to be the centerpiece of this time together? Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving in your presence with praise. Praise is befitting of you because you created all things. All things. All meaning all things. And you work all things for your glory. Even the wickedness of Romans and the schemes of the Jews and my sin and my friend's sins. You work all things together for your glory and good. Not that you're the author of those things, but you're just so wise that our sins do not trump your plan. And so we come in your your courts of thanksgiving and in your presence of praise. Father, I pray against the unbelief in each one of us that would cause us to think that we've blown it or screwed up so bad that there's no way we can come back from it. God, would you work against the unbelief in us that would shout that our sin is bigger than your grace? Would you come and teach us, reveal what you did in the burial of Jesus so that we might bury a version of us and that we might come out of the closet and see, stop being secret disciples and come and be your disciples, public and on fire for you. This is your church. The service is all about you. Be the center. Be the pastor. Be the shepherd. God, you know my heart and my limitations do exceedingly and abundantly more than I'm capable of. And we pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen. amen. We've been discussing the last few weeks, walking through the crucifixion of Jesus. And we detailed uh, specifically how Jesus was um, put on trial to how he was beaten and tenderized like meat before you would a barbecue. He was scourged and ripped open and shredded like it had a a head-on collision with a cheese grater. He was tortured. He was put on a cross for your sin, for my sin. That he was hung there to die as a public display of state terrorism. And we talked about how his last cry from the cross is 
just weighty and significant. And so last week we looked at Psalm 22 where Jesus is quoting from in his last moments on the cross. And if you miss any of those teachings, you can go online and you can get those. And so we call this the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we talked about how you answer that why changes your eternity. That if you see Jesus on the cross forsaken for your sin by faith, it changes everything. And Jesus poses this question wanting us to grapple with why did God kill his son? Why did Jesus need to be forsaken? And the answer being he who knew no sin was made sin for us. That it is my sin that put Jesus there. And so we discussed this cry of dereliction. This cry is similar uh, if you've seen the movie Braveheart, okay? And at the end of the movie, you know, the whole movie of Braveheart is to stand up to tyrants. And it's this movie. And, and there's one word that kind of encapsulates everything that that movie stirs in us. And if you watch William Wallace at the end of the movie, and they put him on the stretcher, and they try to get him to recant. They try to say, say mercy, give up, quit. Just, just bow down, and he won't do it. And then they, they kind of pan, and they start ripping him open. And you know what's happening there. And the crowd, even the crowd who hates William Wallace, is looking at him, telling him to give up, cry mercy, like, let it go. And instead, he gathers all of the air in his lungs, and he cries one word, which is the point of the whole movie. Freedom. Freedom. This is what Jesus does on the cross. Suffocating as his body droops on the cross. He gathers from the pain in his nerve centers and all that he is. And he pulls up and he quotes Psalm 22. Forsaken for you. And we said this. That for an unbeliever, you face an eternity forsaken from God. That is the picture of hell. Separated from God. But for us that have trusted Christ by faith, the promise of Hebrews is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Isn't that beautiful? Come on now. Christian, that's yours. That's that little promise you just put in your pocket and you walk out here different with. That's a gospel promise. That he was forsaken so you would never be. And then we talked about this other phrase from another gospel account where it says, it is finished. It's finished. And we can kind of like stop there. It's tetelestai, or from the root teleos, where we get the word um, television, which is like a, an image running from one place to the other, uh, a telephone, even better, a telegraph. When something starts at one place, runs its course, and comes to the end and communicates what it was, we call that a telos, a telegraph. It's finished. Everything that God had intended to do with the Old Testament prophets has come to its completion in what Jesus has done for sin on the cross. He says, therefore, tetelestai, it is finished. You don't have to keep running on the hamster wheel to try to please God. God is pleased with you in what Christ finished on the cross. Come on. Tetelestai says it is finished. And then we finished last week talking about this cat, the centurion. The centurion was a professional killer. He's Navy SEAL, over tons of men. He had seen, what, thousands die? How many had he crucified? 
We said this about him. He was probably in the whole crucifixion scene the most hard to impress person there. For him, like a butcher, it's just Friday. He had seen body after body after body. He had seen people cry, people urinate, people. He'd seen everything on these. He'd seen this time and time again. He is the most desensitized person to the crucifixion in the whole scene. And we said, yet out of the most unexpected place comes the cry, truly, this man was the Son of God. Out of that dude's mouth comes the summary that Mark 1.1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what the whole book is about. And we get to the end, and where do we find it trumpeted except out of the mouth of a Gentile pagan. Where's his disciples at when they're great confessions? Them dudes have already cut tail and run. But we got a centurion standing there, watching the mockings, watching the beatings. He probably set up the soldiers to beat Jesus. Right? He set up the SNL skit theater of mocking Jesus. And yet he watches how Jesus dies, and it just rocks him. Like no other execution or crucifixion ever has and maybe like the high priest maybe we don't know how much theological significance is to the statement he says more than maybe he understands but for him when he sees jesus on the cross he claims divinity because people don't die like that no one took jesus's life from him he laid it down and he sees that And it just messes with him. And so we came to this last time. Have you looked at the cross of Jesus like the centurion to the point where it drew out of you a confession that that dude is the son of God? Are you still waiting for more evidence? The centurion had enough. There's something God-like about this guy dying. We talked about that there's just people that are going to be in this room and people that you know who are going to die differently. There are going to be people who are going to die in their sins and in their fear and in their flesh. And this life is all that they have and they are going to die a certain way. And there are some of us in here who have Christ and who are going to die in a peace that surpasses understanding. Your death even is going to testify to people watching the God that you serve. And so now that gets us down into this verse 42. Again, I, I didn't know, uh, just to confess you, I did not know as much was here. And so I am going to add in a whole another sermon to Mark. Maybe five more sermons, but we're going to get one here, alright? 42, and when evening had come, so evening setting on, since it was the day of preparation. That is the day before the Sabbath. Now, this is important. Jesus had been up all night, um, sweating drops of blood, praying. He had been through kind of a kangaroo court trial, um, tried all morning, then sent to crucifixion that morning, um, roughly around six hours on the cross. That afternoon, he is dead. And then Friday, before the Sabbath, is for the Jews a day of preparation. So, um, if you've never been to Israel, um, I, one of the first things, uh, the first that I stayed there for a few months, on like Friday night, everything shuts down. Like, if you need gas for your car, sorry about you, right? Like everything, everything's shutting down. Like you're not getting anything. 
So what they did on Friday evening, like Friday afternoon, you have to do uh, what CrossFitters do. you got to meal prep. And so some of you, even parents, like here throughout the week, you will meal prep and put lasagna in a bowl and freeze it. So this is kind of what they did for the Sabbath. In order to get ready for the Sabbath, Friday was a day of preparation. Furthermore, uh, this is normal for most Sabbaths. But again, the death of Jesus is overlapping a major festival called the Passover. So they have to prep for the Passover. And what Mark does here is that, again, he is explaining that the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. We've said this from the beginning. The Gospel of Mark is written by John Mark, dictated by Peter, to Gentiles. He's explaining what the day of preparation is to a bunch of Gentiles like you who wouldn't know what it is. Which is awesome, right? So he's explaining what this day would look like. It's a prep day for Passover. Some of you, to get ready for Thanksgiving, you're going to start cooking next week. Right? Like you just got to start buying things. All right, And so another thing that makes this a little bit more complicated is you and I and the Romans are on a solar calendar. That is, we measure kind of like sun up to sundown. They measured from like sundown to sundown. So the day is not over and a new day does not start until sundown. There is a window. I cannot stress how unbelievably awesome this is. There is a unique window from Jesus dying in the afternoon and sundown to where they could keep God's word. Unique, unbelievable, Old Testament prophesied window of opportunity that if this window is not met, God's word's not kept. I mean, that's what's on the line here. From the time Jesus dies to the sun going down, crazy small window For Jesus to fulfill what he prophesied about being three days dead before he rises. Foreshadowed in the book of Jonah which we studied and you can get online. Crazy window. Small window. Verse 43. So God sovereignly has a plan. And then we're going to enter a dude making choices. 43. Joseph of Arimathea. A respected member of the council. Whoa. What? What council is they talking about? This is the Sanhedrin that voted to put Jesus to death. He's a member of the Supreme Court that voted to kill Jesus. We read elsewhere that he did not, in Luke, that he did not consent to the execution of Jesus. So let's just pause here for a second. You and I, if you've been in church for a minute, have you yourself or heard a preacher dog the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the ruling councils or the religious? So what do you do with Joseph of Arimathea who has money, position, and power and yet just loves Jesus with all of his heart? See, there's going to be exceptions to the rule when it comes to the kingdom of God. Not every Pharisee wanted to kill Jesus. Not everybody on the Sanhedrin wanted to kill Jesus. Doesn't that kind of shock you a little bit? The way we talk about religious people? He's a Jew of Jews. It says here that he's from... A a couple things that we, uh, we can read from this. Respected member of the council. 
in the Gospel of John, it says that he is a disciple, but secretly. So if they've got a slide up here, I've got that passage. Uh, they'll bring it up in just a second. In Luke, it says that he is good and righteous. Now that word for righteous is the same word ascribed to Jesus as a righteous man. The difference is Joseph of Arimathea gets his righteousness by grace through faith applied to him. Jesus has intrinsic righteousness. But there, he's called a righteous man in scripture. It says in Luke 23, 51 that he did not consent to the death of Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, it describes him as rich. That's super important for what we're going to talk about later. That Joseph Arimathea is wealthy. Now, the place that he's from, go to the next slide. Ramathaim, Sophia, uh, was a village in the, ho in the hill country of Ephraim, about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. For you that uh, need Bible quizzes for youth kids or Awana kids coming in, you know who was born there? The prophet Samuel. Prophet Samuel is likely from the same exact place where he was from, 20 miles north of Jerusalem. Look down on what the text says. Let's look back at the text. He was a respected member of the council who was himself looking for the kingdom of God. This is like Anna who anticipated, the parents of John, who anticipated and rejoiced at the coming of Jesus, looking for the kingdom of God. He took courage. He gathered courage. Why would he need to gather courage? Because isn't it a bit fearful to identify with Jesus that was just executed by the Romans and the ruling Jewish party? And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, um, go to the next slide. This even gets more curious. I know this is hard to read, but I'll read it to you best I can. Um, John 19 gives us even more information about this. So if you think it's bizarre so far, let's go up a notch. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus, parallel passage. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. Because he feared the Jewish leaders. That's who he had been. A disciple of Jesus on the low. So that nobody knew. Because he feared the Jewish leaders and what they may do to him if he publicly identified with Jesus. He came with Pilate's permission. By the way, not everybody's got President Obama's uh, like phone number saved in there to text him. Not everybody is going to have political connections to connect with Pilate. He's the kind of person that has the, re the connections and the clout and the reputation that he can go to Pilate and ask, how many people at this time had that kind of connection? I would argue very few. Okay? But with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. Nicodemus? Like John chapter 3, Nicodemus? who came to Jesus at night because he was embarrassed to be identified with Jesus, that he asked that whole question about being born again. You remember that, Nicodemus? Do you know who takes the body of Jesus off of the cross? These two cats. Where's, where's Peter at? Right? Where's Philip? Where's Bartholomew? Where's the 12 boys at? Listen to this description of these two people. Accompanied by Nicodemus, another Pharisee, by the way. 
The man who had earlier visited Jesus at night, note how they describe him. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing 75 pounds. Like there's kids in here that don't weigh 75 pounds. Nicodemus spent his own money for the spices and myrrhs and aloes to give Jesus a proper burial. Interesting. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. Okay, where did this linen come from? Go back to Mark. Verse 46. Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut out of rock. Did you ever know that it was Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea who brought, because he was naked on the cross, they bought a shroud and wrapped him in it and it was these two cats that did it. Who would have, if you would have read 14 chapters of the Gospel of Mark, who would have in here said, you know who I think will take care of Jesus after his body is dead? You know, I'll bet on a member of the Sanhedrin and a Pharisee will be the one to take care of Jesus' body. Anybody, anybody vote in that way? The most unlikely source. Let me just pause here. Some of you don't belong in church. You don't. There are going to be tons of people that will tell you, you do not belong here. You have no right to be here. And that's it. In all honesty, you're exactly who should be here. Exactly. A lot of us would look around and say, I have every excuse in the world to not be at church. But I'm like Nicodemus and I'm like Jose Marthea. Unlikely people that just love Jesus. And I'm not going anywhere. This is my people. This is my place. This is my calling. This is my God. So before you come in here and listen to other people and say you, got, you don't belong at church, well, well, crud, they don't belong either. Right? But yet God uses them. Come on now. Taking the body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. Now we'll have to get into that in just a second. In the place where, they, where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. By the way, in the beginning, in Genesis, man fell in a garden and now God is going to redeem man in a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb which no one had ever been laid. That's a weird bit of information. Unless you realize that they reused tombs. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. In the Gospel of Mark, it talks about that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he's laid and follows because they're going to anoint him after. Which is going to come in the resurrection scene and start of chapter 16. So here's what happens. Jesus dies upon the cross for sin. He is naked and exposed up there and his body is there. And what happens is that because of the Jewish custom coming from the law in Deuteronomy 21, you would not leave bodies out in the open on a holy day. So Deuteronomy 21 necessitated that the Jewish leaders came to Pilate and said, Pilate, we don't want the bodies laid up there for days. Now we learn from the Bible that some people died just during the scourging. Other people that survived the scourging might live for hours like Jesus. But men and women might live for two to three days. The Jews didn't want this because of Deuteronomy chapter 21. So they come to Pilate and say, Pilate, like, we need you to kill them and get rid of them because the Passover's coming. So Pilate grants this. Again, unique small window. Pilate sends, likely the centurion, to go and send soldiers to break the legs of the criminals. 
they used a large iron mallet and they would swing it at the femurs, crack the femurs so that people would descend and they couldn't pull themselves up to get a, a, a breath and they died of asphyxiation. They died of suffocation. They broke the thieves' legs, but when they came to Jesus as a centurion, a professional who would be held accountable if it wasn't true, said Jesus was already dead. So they took a spear, ran it underneath the rib sack into the heart and out poured blood and water. They thinking that this is just their custom, but hundreds of years before, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, says that they would look on them, not that they broke the bones, they would look on them, they pierced. Furthermore, the law required that a Passover lamb that was offered to God could never have its bones broken. They think they're just skipping over breaking Jesus' femurs. But the scripture required that the Passover lamb have not one bone broken. The eyewitnesses standing there could testify, as was recorded here in Mark, that his legs and bones were not broken, but rather that he was speared. Joseph Arimathea, in a small window between them asking for them to take him down from the cross, as they are going to finish that off, Joseph comes into the presence of Pilate. What, within an hour window that he had? And said, can I have the body of Jesus? I want to honor it. I want to respect it. Now, it talks about the Jewish burial custom here. And I, I think this is unbelievably important. So, so the burial custom would have required all kinds of things. So one is these shrouds. Which, by the way, if you're into one of those things, this is where Roman Catholics get the shroud of Turin. If you've heard a lot about that. Luke 24, 12 says that Peter sees the clothes when he after the resurrection he sees the shroud luke uh john chapter 20 verse 5 says that i love this account john says that he outran peter it's like peter may be a fisherman but when it comes to track speed the disciple jesus loves has got the footwork it says john outruns peter and it says that when he arrives at the tomb he sees these same linen cloths these linen cloths are about as popular in the gospel narrative as like the Millennium Falcon is in Star Wars. Like it's just in every account. Go into the next one, verse 6 and 7. Peter says that he saw the linen cloths that Jesus had been buried in folded inside the tomb. Folded. By the way, kids, Jesus does his laundry. It's the, it's the takeaway. So, so think about this. The spices, the linen cloths, this custom that they're doing. Joseph, getting to what you just said, Randy, at the, the offering time. Joseph and Nicodemus are financially invested in serving Jesus. They bought the linen cloth. They bought 75 pounds of spices. The tomb. Anybody done any uh, preparation for your funeral? Any cemetery prep? No? It's morbid for church, right? You just realize that even when you die, you need a million dollars. It's expensive. They are financially invested. Joseph, we learn from the other Gospels, is offering his own tomb to Jesus. One that is just freshly cut. 80% of the, the burials inside of Israel were in caves for this reason. Because us in Colorado understand, mining ain't easy. Right? They had to pickaxe to build a tomb that is there. And it says that Joseph offered Jesus his own tomb that is there. Joseph and Nicodemus are financially invested in serving Jesus. 
and what they give will be used as evidence and a witness for Jesus. To Peter, to John. Crud, Jesus is going to fold it. Okay, so let, let, let's talk about how important this is. This imagery is all over your culture and you don't realize it. Go to the next slide. Um, so in the new uh, DC comics, um, you may have noticed that they kill Superman. Superman is a parallel in the comics to Jesus. Inside of this image in the new movies that they made of Batman versus Superman, you will notice in the background there are three crosses. I tried to find the imagery. They wrap Superman in his cape and they lower him down after doomsday kills him. Same imagery. Go to the next slide. I'll show you. This is the imagery of Jesus being taken down to the cross. And when they think about the supreme man, the greatest man being lowered down, this is where they go. Okay? Now, go to the next slide. This is a picture of the garden tomb in Israel. It's like a couple blocks away from the outer gate. I, I think that it's probably very unlikely that the garden tomb is where Jesus was actually buried. It's possible, but very unlikely. But a lot of Protestants go there. What the garden tomb is really helpful for us, and if uh, Ronnie ever approves our uh, Israel trip, I'd love to teach you there, all right, Israel trip. Um, when we're there, what, what's beautiful is it is what a garden would have looked like, and it is what a tomb there would have looked like. This hole in the, ro in the rock is cut through there, and you can go in, and there's shelves. See, they reuse tombs. This was one that nobody ever used in the, in the account of Jesus. What they would do is they put their body on shelves until they became bones, and then they used ossuary boxes to put their bones inside of it. Uh, so this is very likely similar to what it was. Go to the next one. This is inside what's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This is traditionally where most ecumenical churches, um, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Lutherans, etc., etc., this is where they claim that Jesus is buried, the historical space. There's some historical reason for that. I would argue unlikely. Um, they're actually currently doing some excavation and archaeology there at this time. But you can go there, you can visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and you can go through places where they believe that his body was prepared for burial, and then later that he was buried um, there. This gets into a whole concept of how they buried people. Okay, So criminals at this time were not usually given this kind of treatment. right? Like, Go to the next slide, just to give you an idea. This is a, 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 a tomb from Pierre Lachaise in Paris. This is where like college girls go to take selfies in front of tombs. Um, but it's a beautiful, it's a garden, it's huge. If you go to Paris, it's worth going to. Basically, your whole family would take and have a tomb like this, and it goes down in the ground. And so like when new people died, if your family has this land, you could put hundreds of people down, like in boxes, you know, like down in there. And so it was a way in which they saved burial grounds. Okay? And this is really expensive. Really, really, really expensive. Do you know what's not expensive? Throwing the body on a trash heap. And criminals that were crucified were regularly taken off the cross. Likely the two other thieves, their bodies were taken to a valley outside of the city called Gehenna. You heard of that before? The Valley of Hymnon? It's the picture that Jesus described as 
They would put trash there, dead bodies, carcasses, and they would light it on fire. They would burn it, just like in Guatemala. They lit fire and burned it. It's a picture of Gehenna. You'd walk by there and you'd smell dead bodies all the time, burning. It's a place where the worm never dies. It's a place of darkness. It's not a place you hang out. It seemed like a forsaken place. In the Old Testament, it was a place of child sacrifice. Where they, it's like the old school abortion when they would kill babies to false gods. That's where that same valley was. And they turned it into a trash heap. So your body, Jesus' body, very likely could have been taken off the cross and thrown into Gehenna. It could have been thrown into the trash, but it wasn't. Is that accidental? Is that just by chance? Does that mean anything? Well, let, let me talk about a couple things. Pagans and Christians see burial very differently. For instance, uh, Plato would talk about when we have salvation, it's salvation from the body. And with some of you with arthritis, you kind of might jive with Plato a bit. Like salvation from the body. They saw the body as evil and wicked and sinful. And that when they got saved, you know, salvation or whatever it would be, would you get saved to be a Jedi space ghost? All right? You're disembodied into like Casper. Okay? Christianity did not see it this way. Christianity affirms that God created us to be embodied experiences. So that when we get saved, we get a new soul. We get born again on the inside. And one day we'll have a resurrected body that matches the resurrected soul that we have on the inside of us. Does that jive? Because God knows it's good to enjoy tacos. And space ghosts just don't get tacos. Alright? And so it's just a very different view of the body. The early church, even one of the biggest things that we did to witness, when the whole culture hated us, um, you can go back to my COVID sermon during 2020. I talked about this the same way. They were so afraid of disease, they were throwing dead bodies of relatives in the streets. And Christians would come and take the bodies of people that hated them and take them to graves and put them in the catacomb. They, bar- they gave them proper burials. Like Christians became like the first morticians and used it to say something about how the image of God is even inside of, of bodies. And they respected it. They gave proper burials. Now this gets into a conversation. It's like, should Christians be cremated? Because a lot of pagans, because they saw the body as wicked, they would just burn the body. I don't think there's anything wrong with cremation or any of this stuff. I know some of you have already got plans, all right? It's fine. But the pattern in, Bi- in the Bible has always been burial. So in the Old Testament, Abraham only owns one piece of property, Machpelah. And he buys this property to be buried in the Holy Land. 80% of the burials were inside of caves or things of this nature. Like... Um, Isaac is buried this way. Jacob, for instance, Jacob. Jacob has his bones down in Egypt, and he says to his sons, when, you, when God takes you on Exodus out of here, dig up my bones and bury me in Israel. It's interesting, right? Moses dies, and God doesn't call the undertaker. God himself buries Moses. There's this pattern of respect or kind of burials inside of there. And most of the burials would have been in the garden tomb type place around Israel. And they would have had a square stone or a circular stone with stops rolled there to stop grave robbers. Because just like today and then, lots of people like to be buried with their most valuable possessions. So grave robbers would sometimes come. And so they had a massive stone rolled in front of it, which we'll address next week as we talk about their resurrection. 
Let me take it even further about how Christians have thought about this in the ages. Do you know that there's a difference between a cemetery and a graveyard? That there's a difference. Now, we use them interchangeably today, and that's fine in language. But originally, the entomology was not the same. Number one, when Christians uh, would die, and there would be a Christian that was the example of everything we want every Christian to be. Miss Georgia, all right? For you that know Miss Georgia, right? This could be Ronnie when he goes, all right? Everything we want him to be. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take their bones, and when we go plant a church in Cortez, we're going to put Ronnie right in the center of the foundation, down in the, the basement. It would be the youth room today. If you've ever been over there, it looks like a crypt. And we put them there, and then we build the rest of the church on top of a dead, now we would say a saint. What were they saying with that? That the church, as you would come in, you would know that there's Christians who came before you who laid down their lives to build the kingdom of God right here. It said something to put somebody who had lived their life on fire for Jesus at the center of the foundation of the church. It was like a visual representation. Other people that would be who loved Jesus and would come after, they would put a graveyard leading up to the steps of the church. That is, you would walk through tombstones to get to the church. Go to the next slide. You would walk through tombstones. So I don't know what a seeker-friendly church would do with this right here. Right? We want, we want to be great coffee and ascetic. We don't want them to think about anything negative when they come in. It's like, how about we put a graveyard right as they walk in? You know, just a bunch of tombs of their grandpas. What did this do to you? You came into church sober. You came into church sober-minded. You came in thinking about life and death and eternity. Later, Christians also have a thing about the cemetery. The cemetery was a, was a graveyard basically off-site from the church. This population got so large and they had to put it there. Many different denominations could be buried in a cemetery. But the difference is, is that a graveyard is attached to a church. And it's used by the church as a witness of the faithful that came before and that people that walk in the building understand their place in church history. Isn't that powerful? That the burial itself is a testimony. So here's the question. Why bury Jesus if he could have been thrown on the trash heap? If he could have been disposed, his body, he's dead. He, he, you know, he's in the grave three days. He's coming back, y'all. All right? But in those three days, we could have buried him anyway, but he's going to go to Joseph's tomb. He didn't go to poor people's tombs like mine. He went to a rich dude's tomb. He also didn't see corruption on the trash pile. His body ain't going to be burned up and stuff. It's going to be taken care of. Why was he buried like that? Here's why. Because God keeps his word. Because God keeps his word. Because God keeps his word. And you don't believe it, but God can be trusted to keep his word. Go to the next slide. Isaiah chapter 53. Surely, this is the most wonderful, gruesome, beautiful, heavy, 
description of what your Lord Jesus did for you. Isaiah chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet he, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced. Listen to that language. Pierced for our transgressions. Hundreds of years before Jesus ever comes on the scene. Pierced for transgressions. What are you talking about, Isaiah? He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Sing about that. With his wounds we are healed. All we have like sheep gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you're Jewish and you're here, what do you do with that? That's it. That's Old Testament. That's not in the New Testament. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Does that sound not like the mockers and what converted the centurion? Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Go to the next one. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. It's a kangaroo court, y'all. Ain't the first, ain't going to be the last. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Who got that? Verse 9, listen to this verse. And they made his grave with the wicked. That is, he died with criminals and deserved to be buried with them. And with the rich man in his death. And with the rich man is death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. They understood that Jesus was going to be buried like a rich man. Though he himself didn't have a penny to his name. His last garment as he got to the cross was gambled to Vegas in front of him. He ain't got no money for no tomb. No fancy funeral. But he's, he's with the rich man in his death. What's that talking about? The Bible saw Joseph of Arimathea coming. You know why he's buried this way? Because God ordained it so. He is going to sovereignly use the acts and will and desires and activities of man. Working of their own volition and their own choices. And yet he is so sovereign and wise. He is going to work it together to accomplish what his word saw was going to do anyways. That's the sovereignty of your God. I could go further into the next one. Go to the next slide. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He could not be held down by death because he was irresistible life. For David says concerning him. David's not talking about himself. He's talking about the Messiah. I saw the Lord always before me, and he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, and my flesh will also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, exact picture Gehenna, or let your Holy One see corruption. The body of Jesus would not see that corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make full of gladness with your presence. Doesn't seem clear yet? Let Peter explain it. Go to the next slide. Brothers, this is Peter explaining the Old Testament text that Jesus wouldn't see corruption. 
I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. He's like, you could go two blocks over and see David's tomb. Being therefore a prophet, speaking of David, and knowing that God had sworn in an oath to him that he would set his descend, one of his descendants on throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. The, though he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, sorry, I typed that wrong. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter comes and preaches and says, David who prophesied about that, he's got a tomb and his body has since withered and seen corruption. But the tomb of Jesus is empty. Because God wouldn't let him go to the trash heap. Why did Jesus die this way? It's because God ordained it. But here's the thing. He used a Joseph. He used a Joseph. This was his plan. But he called a Joseph and he used a Joseph. Someone who had formerly been a coward. And there's something that happened in him. That after the death of Jesus, it messed him up. And he wasn't afraid to come out the closet as a Christian. Such that he would use his political connects to go to Pilate. Such that all the Jews would have known what him and Nicodemus are doing. See, used to Joseph, someone not afraid to be identified with Jesus in his death. It might have taken the death of Jesus, but it got the death of Jesus got Joseph out of hiding and into the game. See, there's a version of Joseph that is respectable, that's clean. He wears the collared shirt. He's got a good name. He's got a great job. He's got money. There's a version of Joseph that slides under the radar and is never used by God. The worst version of Joseph is him still trying to be middle school cool. Caring what a group of peers says about him more than he cares about doing what God called him to. See, God used the death of Jesus to take him from being a secret disciple to being the one that served to bury his body according to scriptures he might not even have known that he was interacting with. It got him out of hiding. It was the death of Jesus that buried something of Joseph. See, we talk about burying things. We, if we bury hidden treasure, we, we, we bury the hatchet. It's like we put it there to forget about it. There is something about Joseph that between the crucifixion and this scene right here, there's something about, there's a version of Joseph that gets buried. You know what we call that in the church? Baptism. Baptism, baptizo, is just the Greek word for buried. That's it. The word for buried is the word baptism. When we come in baptism, we say, there is a worst version of you. 
A version of you that is a slave to sin. A version of you that if we just surrendered you over to the flesh, to sin and the devil, that's exactly who you would be. And we bury that fool. And we raise a version of you that's in Christ. Raised to the newness of life. The best version of you is the version that walks with God. There's people in here that got saved when you were six years old. And sometimes when people ask you about what you're like before you got saved, you're like, I don't know, I was six. I put gum in my sister's hair, I don't know. Here's how you know what you were like before you got saved. What's the worst version of you today if you don't have Jesus? How do you talk to your spouse? How does the worst version of you talk to your spouse? How does the worst version of you act at work? Do they hide? Are they a jerk? Talk to me. Are they adulterous? Are they lustful? Are they proud? Are they angry? Talk to me about who the worst version of you is right now. Because that's the person Christ is putting to death. Today, you 100% born again when you're six years old. Absolutely possible. But today, that person, God is still crucifying. That he might have a resurrected version of you come to life. See, the worst version of Joseph is the guy that was wealthy and well-respected and he knew it. Such that he couldn't put his reputation on the line for Jesus. Because what it might cost him. And the best version of, of Joseph is the one that says, I don't care. I'm going to pull every string with Pilate I can. I'm going to put my money on the table. I'm going to make sure he has cloth. I'm going to drape. I'll give you my own tomb. Everything I have belongs to Jesus. See, there's something that happens on the cross that moves Joseph out of hiding and into the game. My fear right here in this room is that there's some secret disciples of Jesus. That outside this room, nobody knows that he's your master, that he's your life. You've got a reputation out there at work and with friends that is strangely different than it is in here. I'm afraid we got some Josephs in here. I love what Alistair Begg says about this. And I want you, if you take nothing else away from this whole sermon, I want you to sink your teeth in right here and open your ears and open your heart. Either your secrecy will destroy your discipleship or your discipleship will destroy your secrecy. Either your secrecy will destroy your discipleship or your discipleship will destroy your secrecy. But you are not staying one way or the other. Family, I love you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave that you might have life in his name. That the best version of you might go on forever. Can I pray for you? With heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe just between you and God,
Have you ever went public? Not, I think people could guess I'm a Christian because of how moral I am. Have you ever went public and confessed publicly the name of Christ? Paul says that anyone who believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth will be saved. Have you ever confessed with your life that Jesus is Lord? Whatever the cost. If you're here and you would say, that's never been for me, but today I want to come out of hiding and I want to trust Christ. I would love to pray for you. Would you raise your hand? If you're right now doing business with the Lord and you're saying, I've never identified with Christ in His death. That's you and I could pray for you. Whoever believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. Maybe you're here and you know your workplace, Christian. You know your family, you know your friend group. You know those you play golf with. And you are under the radar for Christ. If you even right now and you just feel the Holy Spirit convicting you to come out of hiding and you know somebody that you need to talk to this week, would you just raise your hand? I'd love to pray for you. If you'd say, that's me, I see your hands. I know that God is convicting me to talk to this person, to love this person, to get into an awkward conversation. I don't know where it's going to go, but just to represent Christ. If that's you, Raise your hand. I'd love to pray for you. I see that hand. Family, if you're a believer in here, would you stand in agreement just with those that have felt moved by the Holy Spirit? Would you pray together? Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. In heaven, you are always, always exalted, proclaimed, loved, treasured, confessed. And so, God, we come to bring to earth what is happening in heaven right now. Rejoicing, praise, worship, adoration, confession. Father, I pray for those in here who have never trusted Jesus as their Lord. Holy Spirit, would you just bother them until they repent of sin and believe on the name of Jesus, please. And for my brothers and sisters in boldness who raise their hands saying they've got conversations overdue, God, I pray right now that you would divinely create appointments for those conversations to take place and that you would give them boldness and clarity with the gospel and with their testimonies and what you've done in their lives. That, God, their speech would be so salty that it draws their friends and their family to the living water found only in Christ. God, would you change a bunch of cowards like us into people like Joseph who risk it all for your name. We pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us and respond in worship?